Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians in chapter 3 is where we are uh, picking up on today. So, These first few verses in Philippians 3 uh, that we have been examining contain some fantastic and pointed truths about our salvation in Christ. They also express one of the greatest personal testimonies in the New Testament. It's, it's one of the most uh, significant statements on the issue of salvation found in the New Testament. It is the Apostle Paul's own testimony regarding the dramatic attitude change that occurred in his mind when he came to know Christ as his Savior. His testimony takes us right into the very heart of a person when they truly come to Christ and what happens in a person's heart and mind when they come to the Lord. We're going to read today again those first couple verses in Philippians 3. We're going to today read up to chapter, or up to verse 11 rather. And we'll look at uh, a significant portion of this passage this morning. Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And we sort of took those three verses apart in detail last Sunday. He says there in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What happens in a person's heart and mind when they come to Christ? What, what actually takes place inside that person when they come to Christ? I'll tell you, there, there is a complete change of perspective, a total change of attitude. That's what the word repent is all about. The New Testament Greek word that we translate as repent literally means to change your mind or to change your thinking or to change your attitude. You're going one direction and you turn around and go the other direction. You used to believe one thing, but now you're headed the opposite way. You see, true salvation always involves repentance. We have to change what we believe about ourselves, and we have to change what we believe about God. And so what happens in a person's heart and mind when they come to Christ? There is always this complete change of perspective. There's a total change of attitude. You see, our, our sin nature always deceives us into thinking that we're better than we are. And that starts in childhood. 
Little children, little tiny children, those of you with little children in your homes and those of you who've raised little children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Little children start rationalizing their actions and justifying themselves at a very young age. And they don't even know what those words mean to rationalize and justify, but that's what they're doing. They aren't even thinking abstract thoughts yet, yet everything is so concrete in their minds, yet their little sin natures are already very active fighting for what they think they want and defending their actions and, and when they're acting in a sinful way. And as we grow up, we learn all sorts of ways to argue our, argue our way out of trouble and blame it on our sisters and brothers and manipulate our parents or anyone else in authority. And we do our very best to never have to be accountable for what we do. We become masters at rationalizing and justifying. Someone told me once that after they took a college-level class on logic, it was a lot easier to win arguments with his wife. And, uh, and uh, what's he doing? He's learning to rationalize and justify. You see, our, our sin nature always deceives us into thinking that we're better than we are. Hold your finger here for just a moment and look at James chapter 1. Just a couple of verses there I want to read to you this morning. James chapter 1. And I'm going to begin to read in verse 22. James 1, verse 22. James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, you can be deceived very easily. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he forget, for he observes himself and then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, he's talking about the Bible there, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. James says the scripture is like a mirror. When we read it and ignore what it's showing us, then we, then we develop a very convenient memory loss regarding our own flaws and failures. We look at the word of God, we don't do it, then we just go our way and we kind of forget what the Bible said. But when we read it and we determine to do what it says, then James says our life is blessed because we are dealing with our sinful impulses and our sinful habit patterns. Psalm 119, verse 30, great passage there, says, The entrance of your words gives light. And in that same passage, Psalm 119, verse 105, very, very famous verse says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. You see, the light of God's word shines into our hearts, and it's a mirror to help us see who we are and what we are. It shines into those dark corners of our lives to try to awaken us to reality. And that's why James says, don't just hear what the Word says, do what the Word of God says. I think I've told you the story many years ago. A person said to me once rather indignantly, you know, well, I, I read the Bible once, didn't do anything for me. And I said, well, that's great that you read it. Did you actually do what it said? And he kind of looked at me with this blank stare like he didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, reading it's great, but no, it's not going to do anything for you if you don't do what it says. 
Because you can't just be a hearer of the word, you have to be a doer of the word. You have to hear what the word of God says and you've got to let it penetrate your life and let that mirror of the scripture show us what we are and what we need to do and to to awaken us to, to the reality of our sin nature and then we can begin to respond to what God's telling us. And that's what and that's what Paul is describing to us back in Philippians in chapter 3. That, that's what Paul is describing to us, his walk of repentance, his eyes being opened to the truth about himself and the truth about Jesus Christ. And, and that is the path that every single person has to walk if they're going to truly come to Christ. You see, our, our world is filled with people. I know a bunch of them. You know a bunch of them. Our world is filled with people who in the eyes of their friends and their neighbors, they are very nice people. But they are not going to be in heaven. Because they are trusting the wrong things and they have the wrong kind of righteousness. Now, if you know Christ as your Savior, you'll understand what the Apostle Paul is describing in these verses that we look at in just a moment. And when we talk about knowing Christ as your Savior, we simply mean knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way, knowing that He has forgiven me, knowing that I belong to the family of God. When we know Christ, then we understand exactly what Paul is describing here. Many, many years ago, at the, the local alcohol treatment center here in, in Hart Butte, had a place that they called a halfway house. It was kind of a place between a detox facility and a return to ordinary life. I, I knew long, long ago, I knew the fellow who was the director. He was a professing follower of Jesus. He invited me to come by once a week and conduct Bible studies for anybody who, who might like to come which I did for many months. At one of the Bible studies, a, a lady came who had never come before, and partway through the study, she, she really got upset. And she sort, of, she sort of stood up and kind of stomped her foot a little bit, and she said, You talk about God like you know Him or something. You think you're so good you can get to heaven? She kind of said with a sneer. I said, Well, yes and no. Yes, I absolutely do know God. And no, I absolutely am not good enough to get to heaven. I said, me getting to heaven has nothing to do with me, and it has everything to do with Jesus. And then I proceeded to try to explain the gospel again, although I don't think the truth penetrated the lady who was angry that day. So let me ask you this as we work through these passages. When, when you pray, do you talk to the Lord like you know him? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be talking to the Lord as though you are talking to your friend. As though you really know who He is. If someone were to say to me, do you know the current Montana governor, Greg Gianforte? I would have to say, well, not really. I know who he is, and I know what he looks like, and I know a number of things about him. I know a number of facts about him, and I met him at Chief Earl Oldperson's funeral last October, and I shook hands with he and his wife and had a brief 30-second chat, and I've actually been mistaken for him on two different occasions in public settings. Must be our mutual hairstyle. But no, I don't actually know him in any sort of personal way. And that is the kind of relationship with Jesus that many nice religious people have. They know who he is. <clears throat> they know a list of facts about him. They may feel like they have some sort of personal connection with him from their childhood or their upbringing. 
but they do not know Jesus Christ in any sort of personal way. They're, they're trusting the wrong things, they have the wrong kind of righteousness, and that's exactly the circumstance that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this passage of Scripture. Remember, as we ended our study last Sunday, we noted that the Apostle Paul listed three characteristics or three marks of the people who truly belong to the Lord. There in verse 3, he said, They worship God in the Spirit, they rejoice in Christ, and they have no confidence in the flesh. You see, their, their worship of God is not based on rituals or ceremonies. Their fellowship with God is based on relationship. There's a spiritual connection there, and I don't mean something mystical. When I talk about a spiritual connection, I don't mean something mystical where we sit in a circle in the dark and hum kumbaya and having some kind of an experience. Or where we get worked up emotionally and get delirious with euphoria and then we call it spiritual. Now I'm not bashing kumbaya, it's actually meant to be a prayer. I used to sing it back in the 60s and 70s. Maybe some of you young people don't even know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it was, it was a grand little chorus that was around 40, 50 years ago. And, uh, but it was meant to be a prayer, not give you warm, fuzzy feelings. You see, spiritual and emotional are not the same thing. Jesus told the woman of Samaria to worship God in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 4. And our spiritual connection with God, if it's a real connection, is based on truth. My spirit connects with God's spirit because I believe what God says. God's word is truth. I believe it. I obey it. I have fellowship with God. And the word worship comes from a root word that means, that means heavy. It means I give it weight. It's important to me. I value it. The old English word was worship. I'm giving worth to this. In other words, because of the way I live, I am demonstrating how much Jesus is worth to me. That's worship. That's the spiritual connection of relationship. So Paul says, so the real people of God, Paul says, worship God in the Spirit. They rejoice in Christ. Remember, we've said that joy is being satisfied in God, being content with God regardless of my circumstances. And Paul says the real people of God are rejoicing in what Christ has done for them. They are not glorying in what they have done. They are not patting themselves on the back. They are not putting any confidence in the flesh, which brings us to the very core or the center of our thoughts today. That a real relationship with Jesus is so much better than religious ceremonies, as we said last week. And a real relationship with Jesus is so much better than self-righteous confidence. Let's read, if we may, verses 4 through 9 once again. Paul says, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul writes, if anybody wants to trust their human achievements to get them to heaven, and then he said, stack your achievements up against mine, because I, I, I had it all. And note, Paul here, when he uses these terms, he's using accounting terms. He's using business terms. He's describing this transaction, this agreement he made with God. He had this profit column, and he had this loss column. And he had all these grand human achievements in his profit column. And when he realized the truth about salvation in Jesus Christ, he moved everything from his profit column over into the loss column. He canceled it all out. He X'd them out in order to gain Christ, he said. In other words, I made a calculated decision. I counted all those things as a loss in order to gain the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an interesting parable in Matthew 13. We won't take the time to read it this morning. You can read just there are actually several interesting parables in Matthew 13. The whole chapter has, has several parables, but there are two of them, just, just short ones, in which Jesus describes a man who finds something that is hidden in a field. And and he covers it back up, and he goes to town, and he sells everything he has in order to buy that field to get that treasure. Jesus says there's another man who finds this incredible pearl that's worth an incredible amount of money, and he sells everything he has to get that one pearl. Jesus said in those parables, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That once you discover the amazing treasure in Jesus Christ, then you exchange everything that you have in order to get it. Everything in your profit column goes into the lost column in order to gain this incredible treasure, this one thing. And here in Philippians, we see Paul has not only moved everything in his spiritual profit column into the lost column, he's now changed his whole attitude about his profit column. He considers it all garbage. Even worse than garbage, as we'll discuss in a moment. So let's look at Paul's spiritual profit column. There are seven different things Paul said that I have in my spiritual profit column that he said I'm throwing them all out. You remember last week we talked about the Judaizers who wanted to force everybody into the Hebrew religious system. And Paul's saying, you Judaizers want to try to force everybody to be Jewish. He said, you think you can somehow score points with God this way? Then he said, stack yourself up against me, against, against my list. And Paul says, I've got seven spiritual advantages, and we're going to list them in relation to salvation. Because a lot of people do similar things trying to score points with God. Number one is this, salvation is not by rituals. The very first phrase there in verse, in verse 5, he said, I'm circumcised the eighth day. We talked all about this last week, but the, about the, the circumcision and the right, the religious right of all of that. We won't we won't redo all of that this week. But those who are fluent in New Testament Greek tells us tell us that the phrase here literally reads regarding circumcision. I'm an eighth dayer, meaning that regarding the Old Testament Hebrew religious system, Paul started his life going by the book. God had commanded that Jewish baby boys be circumcised on the eighth day of their life. Paul says, I started out my life as a Hebrew, going by the book, thanks to my parents. But he says, regarding my salvation in Christ, it means absolutely nothing. Because salvation does not come to us by a ritual. 
Secondly, he said, salvation is not by ethnic origin. He said, I am of the stock of Israel. To use modern terms, Paul's saying, I am a full-blood Israelite. No Gentile DNA in me. I'm no Samaritan. You can trace my ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And regarding salvation in Christ, it means nothing. Remember these guys he's speaking against, the Judaizers trying to make everybody Jewish in order to come to Christ? Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm 100%. I'm a full-blood Jew. I'm a full-blooded Israelite. And he said, when it comes to salvation in Christ, it means absolutely nothing. The third thing he says, salvation is not by family connections. He said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now that means little or nothing to us, because if we don't understand all the things about the Old Testament, you don't know the significance of the tribe of Benjamin. But of all the tribes, remember, 12 tribes in the nation of Israel, the, the two most elite tribes were Judah and Benjamin. We talk a lot about Judah because it was out of the line of Judah, out of the tribe of Judah that comes the Messiah. But we can't forget Benjamin. Benjamin was, was a very elite tribe. He was the younger of the two sons born to Rachel. Some of you remember your Genesis history. Uh, he was Joseph's brother. Uh, remember, Jacob had the two wives, Rachel and Leah. He didn't like Leah so much. He loved Rachel. That was his favorite wife. And, and Joseph and Benjamin were, his, were, uh, were the sons of Rachel. And so Rachel, being Jacob's favorite wife, made Benjamin a favorite child. In fact, he was the last baby of his beloved wife who died actually giving birth to him. Benjamin, according to Genesis 35, was the only one of the sons of Jacob that was born in Canaan, born in the promised land. Benjamin was given unique military priority. According to Judges chapter 5, the tribe of Benjamin was almost always at the front line of the battle. Judges chapter 20 indicates they had, it's kind of interesting to me, you guys into military stuff, had 700 left-handed soldiers who used a slingshot, and the scripture says they could throw a stone within a hair's breadth and not miss. So that's why they were in the front line. As they charged into battle, they got 700 guys, all left-handed, so they wouldn't be hitting each other. All left-handed slingshot throwers who could throw a stone at a hair's breadth. Can you imagine 700 stones coming at the enemy at, 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 at 95 miles an hour? Quite an impressive military feat. And so that was all the tribe of Benjamin. When the nation looked for a king, you know what they did? They went to Benjamin and they found Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, God divided up the land, the promised land. He gave certain sections of the land to each tribe. And the section that he gave to Benjamin included the city of Jerusalem. When the kingdom split after Solomon died, Benjamin remained loyal to Judah. They formed the southern kingdom. In the time of Esther, when wicked Haman wanted to destroy the nation in those days of Esther, God rescued Israel through another person of the tribe of Benjamin, Mordecai, Esther's uncle. So Esther probably was also from the tribe of Benjamin. Many New Testament historians believe by the time Paul wrote Philippians, most Jewish people didn't even know who their tribe was. Some of the records had been lost when Nebuchadnezzar overran Jerusalem, and there was a lot of intermarriage between tribes. So Paul is saying, I am as pure a Jew as you can get. Circumcised the eighth day, of, I, I'm, I'm a full-blooded Jew, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, and he said, I'm as pure a Jew as you can get, and it means absolutely nothing. It cannot save me or make me right with God. 
Rituals and ethnic origin and family connections cannot earn us a place in heaven. You could be a priest or a pastor or come from a religious family, or you could be what we kind of jokingly call a PK or an MK, and that's a preacher's kid or a missionary's kid. You can be born into a religious family, into a ministry family. God is not impressed, and you will not get to heaven one lick faster. One of my uncles shared with me a number of years ago that on my mother's side of the family, he knew back five generations back into the 1800s of at least one person on my mother's side of the family who knew the Lord. Now that's kind of cool, but regarding me getting to heaven, it means absolutely nothing. Those first three religious credits that Paul was talking about, he inherited. That was up to his parents. But the last four were his personal achievements. And the fourth thing is, as he says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, meaning salvation. He said, it's not by education or tradition. He knew his culture, he says. He still spoke Hebrew. He wrote Hebrew. Much of the language had been lost. Most Jews spoke Greek, but not Hebrew. Paul says, hey, I know my culture. I know my traditions. I know my language. I know my customs. I was taught by the famous, highly respected Rabbi Gamaliel. I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I am at the top of the pyramid. If Paul were alive today, we'd say he had at least one PhD, maybe several. He spoke at least four languages, Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and Latin, maybe more. So when he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he's saying, there is nobody who is more Jewish than me. And he said, my salvation does not come because of my education or my traditions. Number five, salvation is not by religious status. He said, I'm a Pharisee. Concerning the law, I am a Pharisee. Now, we always use that word in a terribly negative way today, for good reason, given the way the Pharisees generally treated the Lord Jesus. But in Paul's day, it was estimated that there were only about 6,000 Pharisees out of a several million Jews. They were a very elite group with enormous social and religious and political authority. It was very, very hard to become a Pharisee. The requirements were very strict. That's why there were only about 6,000 of them out of, out of several million Jewish people. And Paul says, hey, concerning law, I'm a Pharisee. Any of you Judaizers out there trying to make people into Jews? He said, can you, can you say that? No, they probably couldn't. And then these two are so important for us in our modern day today. Number six, salvation is not by sincerity. He says, concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Paul had incredible zeal for God. It was misdirected zeal. He was persecuting the wrong people. It was self-righteous zeal. But nobody was any more sincere in what they believed than the Apostle Paul. He knew who God was. He had massive portions of the Old Testament memorized. He had to do that in order to become a Pharisee. He said, I'm, a, I'm as sincere and zealous as anybody out there. But he said, it won't do anything for me. You ever heard people say, well, they may, be, they may have some wrong ideas, but they're sincere. Well, you may have wrong ideas about a lot of things, but you can't have wrong ideas about Jesus. You can't have wrong ideas about our sin, because sincerity does not, does not get you to heaven. You can be as sincere and kind-hearted as a person may ever, ever even want to be. It will not get a person to heaven. Salvation doesn't come by being sincere. 
And number seven, salvation is not by good works. When you really think about this, Paul says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul says, I kept the Old Testament law. Now, Old Testament students tell us that there were 613 specific regulations in the law of Moses. Paul says, I kept up with all of it. You can't snoop around in my life and find anything that I'm not doing that I should be doing. It's amazing. And, and, and here's, here's, here's the kicker, as they say. When it comes to being forgiven, when it comes to being in Christ, Paul says, everything in my profit column is worth nothing. All those things, my education, my tradition, my religious status, my, my, my zeal for God, all my good works in the law, all of that stuff, being in the tribe of Benjamin, having all the right connections every place I went, all that in my profit column, he said, it's nothing. It's just a bunch of garbage. And the word translated here, I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That word can be translated in a number of different ways. Different English translations translate it rubbish, trash, garbage, refuse, dung, manure. Literally, in anything you would throw away or flush down a toilet, that's what Paul says, that's, the, that's what I think about all those things. Compared to Christ, Paul says, it's all sewage. It can't place you in Christ. All my ethnic pride, all of my impressive education, all of my social standing, all of my religious zeal, all of my human goodness, compared to being in Christ, he said, it's all a garbage dump. It's a sewage pit. It's uh, for you cowboy guys, it's a corral knee deep in mud and manure. That's all it is, he said. Remember we said earlier we have to change our thinking if we're going to truly come to Christ? Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is a life changer. He doesn't just take up the slack for us to add on to our human efforts at earning forgiveness. A lot of people believe that. I try hard and God will sort of take up the slack for me. He'll see I really tried hard and he'll kind of take up the slack for me. No, no, no. Jesus is not an add-on. He is a life changer. He doesn't just take up the slack. He does it all. Now we are commanded by God to live a holy life and to do good works. But not to earn forgiveness or score points with God so he lets us into heaven. Human effort to get to heaven. Paul says, it's a sewage pit. It's a garbage dump. He said, I, I threw all of it away in order to come to Christ. And look at this fabulous, fabulous verse here. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in him. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. You got, see, you got two kinds of righteousnesses out there. You got the righteousness that comes by me trying to be good. That's why your friends and neighbors might think you're a really nice person. A lot of people out there, they do not know Christ in any sort of personal way. They, they have the righteousness that comes from trying to keep the law. But they do not have the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. You say, what's the difference? The difference is the righteousness that comes from Jesus is perfect. The righteousness that comes by trying to keep the law is not perfect. Nobody can be perfect. 
And God opened Paul's eyes to the truth about himself and the truth about Jesus Christ. And as I said a few moments ago, that is the path that every person must walk if they're going to truly come to Christ. Because our world is filled with people who in the eyes of their friends and neighbors are very nice people, but unfortunately they are not going to be in heaven because they are trusting the wrong things and they got the wrong kind of righteousness. You see, our own righteousness comes from good works that can never be perfect. We can't be perfect, but Jesus was. That's why Paul says, I want to be found in Him. He said, I don't want to stand before God with my own attempts at righteousness. I want to stand before God with the righteousness of Christ, because His righteousness is perfect. And I want to close with you this morning in a, with a, by reading to you a beautiful passage in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7. If you have your Bible and would like to turn there, Hebrews chapter 7. And we'll be done here in just a moment. But look, look at this wonderful passage that deals with who Jesus was. Hebrews chapter 7. Why is His righteousness perfect and our righteousness is not? Hebrews chapter 7. You see, when we stand before God, God does not say, let's see how good you were. Well, I'll I'll rank you on a scale of 1 to 10, and if you made at least an 8.5, then I'll take up the slack for you and let you in. That's not the way it works. You stand before God, God says, what is your righteousness? It's got to be a 10. It's got to be perfect. You say, wow, I mean, I, I, I can't do that, Lord. You're right. We can't. But Jesus did. His righteousness is perfect. That's why Paul says, I don't want my own righteousness that comes to the law. When I stand before God, I want to be found in Him. I want to have the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to start to read with you in verse 23. I hate jumping into the middle of the context here, but he says, There were many priests... He's talking about the Old Testament priests. They were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, there'd be a priest in the Old Testament. Of course, they all died. So, I mean, certainly they did. Eventually, all the priests passed away. And so people would come to the priest. They'd bring their offering and so forth. And he said, but they couldn't continue to intercede for you because sooner or later they die. But he said, but he, meaning Jesus, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, Jesus Christ was saving the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago. He can save you today 2,000 years later. You know why? Because he's still alive. And his sacrifice is still good. And his sacrifice is forever, which we'll see again in, in just a moment. But, but look at this next, this next phrase. Verse 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us. And this is talking about Jesus. He is holy, harmless, meaning innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, who has become higher than the heavens. Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners. He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. 
Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful thought. Why can you and I trust the righteousness of Christ? Because it's perfect. And when we stand before God, as Paul said, I don't want my own righteousness that comes from the law. I don't want my own righteousness that comes from being sincere and trying to do good works and having this fantastic education and being fluent in Hebrew and Greek and all these other languages and all these wonderful things I can read in the Scripture. I I don't want that, he says. I want to be found in Him because I want His righteousness that comes by faith. Why? Because it's perfect. Jesus was holy, innocent, and undefiled. And he did not ever need to offer a sacrifice. He offered up himself once for all. And he's still alive today and he can save anybody just like he was saving Paul 2,000 years ago. Jesus is not an add-on. He's a life changer. And if you truly come to Jesus Christ You're going to change your ideas. You're going to change your opinion. You're going to change your perspectives on who you are and who Jesus is. You're going to realize what he did on the cross and that it is the only way to get to heaven. It's him because Jesus' righteousness is perfect. When you stand before God, will you be found in Him? Are you sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are in Christ? That is the only secure place to be. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this so clear a testimony from the Apostle Paul. Lord, we have so many folks that we know, so many folks that we like, many folks that we love. They are still trusting their own righteousness, their own goodness, their own religion, their own niceness to their neighbors. They're trusting all the wrong things. And they are very nice people, but they've got the wrong kind of righteousness. Lord, I pray that you will help us by the way we live and by the way we speak to be able to communicate these truths. Jesus is the only way. His righteousness is perfect. He is the only secure place to be. And Lord, may we be found in Him, as Paul said, not having our own righteousness, but the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.